Church of Christ presents Wrestling with Goodness, the reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, September 24th, 2023. Please pray with me. Holy One of old, open our hearts to your unsettling word. Open our minds to your comforting word. Give us courage to be your people. Amen. About 10 years ago now, I took a village, uh, I took a van full of teenagers to a village on the San Carlos Apache Reservation in Arizona for a week of volunteering. The organization that we volunteered with put us up in tents and set us up with outhouses and bucket showers for the week that we spent there, a tiny little window into the, the experience of housing insecurity and an invitation to experience some solidarity with what that might be like to have a house that was insecure. We spent each day during, doing the kind of construction work that requires really very little training and no prior experience at all. We hung drywall and we laid flooring and we did some mudding, remembering always the wise advice to measure twice and cut once. The house that where we were working, we were very lucky, our group, we were on top of a mesa where there was nearly a constant breeze, which dried us out, but it made the 114 degree temperatures almost bearable. To avoid the very worst of the heat and that dehydrating breeze, we were up at five o'clock in the morning and on our way to the work site by quarter till six. On our second morning, we stopped at Home Depot. Now, I had no idea that Home Depot would be open at that hour, I have no idea anything that's open at that hour because I'm not usually awake. <laughs> but at least in that town and at that time of year, Home Depot was open. Not being especially energetic or indeed willing to converse with anyone at that hour, I stayed in the van going over our roster about who would do which projects that day while the other chaperones and the teens went into Home Depot to get the supplies we needed. The white passenger van that I was sitting in is sort of a universal symbol of do-gooders on the reservation. Everyone on the reservation recognizes the white van with the teens popping out of it in matching t-shirts as do-gooders have arrived. So some of them came over, several people came over to the window and asked if we had food and supplies to share. And we had, we had planned. So I hopped out of the van and I went to the back to dig into the cargo area to get the extra food we'd packed. By the time I stood upright, all of the men had disappeared except one, who said to me, quickly, quick, quick. And he practically snatched the bag out of my hands and ran across the parking lot. I was very confused, and I wondered if I'd insulted them unintentionally in some way. But as I watched the one who had stayed the longest, the one who grabbed the food at the end, dashing across the parking lot, and I saw where he ended up, I began to understand. All of the men who had approached the van had run back to line up to see if they would be one of the ones chosen to work that day. A, a few minutes later, I noticed a, large pickup, a couple of large pickup trucks with the name of a construction company came rolling up. The man in the passenger side rolled down his window and just began pointing at workers. Six or so of the men hopped into the back of the pickup and off they roared. And I sat for the next quarter of an hour and watched as every few minutes this repeated itself. A couple of trucks would roll in, 
They would point, workers would climb aboard, and out they'd go. Sometimes the men who were doing the hiring would greet the workers by name. Sometimes they seemed to be looking for someone in particular. Maybe someone they knew had a special skill or was bilingual or indeed trilingual, or maybe just someone they liked and enjoyed working with. One man, one of the ones who had first asked about food and then ran to get chosen, was left behind on the sidewalk where the hiring was hap happening. But he kept an anxious eye on our van the whole time. When he saw the rest of the team, obvious because of the matching t-shirts, come out of the store and come across the parking lot, he came with them and he asked again about food, shrugging and saying, no work today, I guess. He seemed completely calm about this. He and some of the others were still there at noon when we went back for some more sandpaper and some more tape measures because of that problem of measuring toys and cutting mats. <laughs> we got into a little to do about that. And some of those same people were still there, still waiting by the side of the store. It may be a 2,000-year-old economic pattern, but it was the first time in my sheltered life that I had encountered the precarity of hiring oneself out as a day laborer. There might be work, and there might not. And I always think of that particular week of volunteering when I hear today's gospel story about the day laborers hired to work in the vineyard, about the ones hired at six in the morning, at nine, and noon, those who didn't get chosen till three, and those who were still waiting at five. I think about the good humor of the man that we ran across in Globe, Arizona, still waiting at noon. And I think about a life not just of labor, but of labor and therefore of pay that is uncertain and uneven. My only experience of real physical labor is on those volunteer trips. I am a visitor to the world of labor. I hope I have been a respectful guest and not just a tourist but I have never depended a single day in my life on the labor of my hands to put food on my table. It's a different story. It's a story I need. Even in my short visits, though, to that world of manual work, I has opened a window to me, and I can imagine what the workers in Jesus' story might have been feeling. If I had labored 12 hours in the 114-degree Arizona heat, and some Joe Schmo turned up at 5 p.m. and worked one hour as the shadows were lengthening and the day was cooling and got the same pay packet that I got for 12 hours, I think I'd be just as outraged as the workers who started at dawn in Jesus' story. These last have worked only an hour and you've made them equal to us? It feels monumentally unfair. And that's the phrase of the whole story that leapt out and has kept bothering me like an earworm all week. You have made them equal to us? We like to think that much in our life is in our control and that we have some sense that we will get what we deserve by our striving, that we will earn what we deserve, that we will get to determine who is equal to us and who is not. The landowner responds, 
Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Are you envious because I am generous? As the writer Mary Gordon put it in her book, Reading Jesus, yes, yes, I am envious. I am envious because you are generous. I am envious because my work has not been rewarded. I'm envious because someone has gotten away with something. Envy has eaten my heart. I think Gordon is onto something because really, if this parable doesn't offend us a little bit, then we're either not paying attention or maybe not being entirely honest with ourselves. Maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but we know what fairness is. We know how it's supposed to play out. Equal pay and equal work, that's fair. Equal pay for un unequal work is not fair. Rewarding hard work and ambition feels fair to us. Someone who doesn't work as much, someone who might be slothful or sloppy, getting rewarded, that's not fair. We can be excused, I think, for having this be our first impulse because everything in our culture teaches us that that's the way the world is meant to work. And there is growing evidence that this is not, not any different in the animal kingdom, at least in the primate world. And I'm thinking about the research of a primatologist named, named Franz Duval. I don't know if you've ever seen this YouTube video. It's widely available, but he and his lab did a study on capuchin monkeys. It was a group that had lived together. These individuals were known to each other, and then they were separated into cages and taught to do tasks. It was a simple task like handing over a stone, and there were two in side-by-side -side cages. They had to hand over a stone, and then they were rewarded with a cucumber, a slice of cucumber, which they quite enjoyed. Delicious. They did this over and over, and then the animal on the right did the task and was rewarded with a grape. Nothing better in capuchin diet than a grape. The animal on the left did the task and was rewarded with a cucumber and was incensed, <laughs> threw the cucumber back at the researcher more than one time, over and over, and then began to shake the cage in its rage because it had not been given the special treat that the other one had been given. Seeing that someone else got the more desired prize for the same work is just intolerable to us. It isn't fair. But God, if we can understand the landowner in Jesus' parable to be God, to represent God, God is not fair. At least not fair according to our inherited beliefs about what constitutes fairness. As Debbie Thomas put it, God, it turns out, does not believe that the best place to be is at the front of the line the strongest, the best, the shiniest. God isn't interested, as we so often are, in showing favor to the best and the biggest and the brightest. The workers with the most elite education, with the astonishing professional achievements and the fanciest zip codes. In fact, the landowner in Jesus' story doesn't judge his workers by the hours that they've worked. The story doesn't tell us why some only were hired at the end of the day. Perhaps the late starters are not as literate or educated or as skilled, and so the worker doesn't want them. 
Perhaps they have learning challenges, or a tough home life, or they got there late because they had children they were taking care of. Perhaps they're refugees, or they don't own a car and they can't get to Home Depot at 6 a.m. because they have to work th walk there. Perhaps they don't speak the right language or have the right green card. Perhaps they struggle with depression or anxiety. Maybe they've hit a glass ceiling after years of effort and they're stuck. Maybe employers refuse to hire them because they're gay or trans or disabled or black or female. Whatever the case, the landowner does not ask the workers in the story to defend themselves. All the landowner seems to care about is that every last person in the marketplace finds a spot in the vineyard at last, and that the work in the vineyard continues. The early bird, the latecomer, the able-bodied, the infirm, the young and the old, the male and the female, the popular and the unforgotten. When the workday is over, the landowner does not pay based on who deserves what. He pays based on what everyone needs. Dignity and the security of a living wage. The capacity to go home and feed their families. Sufficient security and peace of mind to sleep at night. Some hope, a sense of accomplishment and dignity in work done. The backdrop of the story is that the payment that was made to the workers, which the Torah requires be paid on the day that the work is done, is the amount of money that it will take to sustain a family for a couple of days. A worker must be paid because of their need. Are you envious because I am generous, asks God? Or as it says literally in the Greek, has your eye become evil because I am good? I wonder if I'm the only person who reads the story this way, who immediately identified with the workers who were chosen first, and whose mind immediately went to solidarity with that sense of indignation. Why did we assume that, instead of assuming we were the one chosen last? Why are we not rejoicing that we waited and waited and finally got hired, and our need was supplied? I don't have an answer, but I think it's fascinating that that's where my mind always goes in this story. Why is it so easy to resonate with righteous indignation? Why is it so hard to just let that go and rejoice? What would happen to our self-understanding and our hope for the realm of God if we saw ourselves in the last chosen, and the joy of receiving abundance. Our second reading for today echoes some of these same questions about abundance and need and mercy. Following his adventure in the belly of a whale, because this is a story, <laughs> Jonah has obeyed God's instructions, and he's warned the people of Nineveh about their wickedness. In a stunning turn of events, the Ninevites have taken Jonah's warning to heart and they have actually repented. Then God, seeing their repentance, changed God's mind about destroying them and shows them mercy. In other words, Jonah preached a sermon, his congregation listened and responded to it. You'd think he would be thrilled. But no, he's not. 
He is simply furious. He is so angry, he would rather die than live in that much anger. He hunkers down east of the city, hoping that God will change God's mind again and burn Nineveh to the ground. Instead, God offers Jonah a somewhat odd and obscure object lesson, including a bush and a worm and the wind. But, in, but it gets to the end with the singer of a question. Is it right for you to be angry? That question is a fraught one, and here's why. Here's some context. Nineveh isn't just any city. It's the capital city of Assyria, which is Israel's bitter enemy. Assyria is notorious throughout the ancient Near East for its violence and depravity. It is the empire that will eventually obliterate the northern kingdom of Israel. These are enemies, real ones. To Jonah then, God's question, are you right to be angry, is a ridiculous one. Of course he has the right to be angry. Isn't it right to be angry that God's mercy extends to these people, these killers? Isn't it right to be angry when people who break the rules don't get the punishment they deserve? Isn't it right to be angry that God's grace so offends our sense of justice? Do you do well to be angry at my mercy, God asks? Because the Assyrians are everything that Jonah believed them to be. They are violent, they have been depraved, and wicked. But God says they are also more than that. Hint, just as you are. They are a great city. They just don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, these also are human beings made in the image of God. But they've lost their way. What they deserve is not the question. What they need is compassion. God challenges Jonah to consider the hard truth that even our worst enemies are God's beloved children. Should God not care for God's, God's own? Is it right for Jonah to be angry? And that's where the story leaves us, on that question, with Jonah unresolved, still sulking outside the city and waiting to see what will happen to the people that he hates and God loves. Debbie Thomas put it this way, we too are left to wrestle with the goodness of God, a goodness that invites us to also become instruments of that same grace, even to people who offend us deeply. Because we are rooted in God's mercy, having received grace upon grace. We are left to wrestle with this goodness that asks us why we so often prefer vindication to rehabilitation. Why do we want to punish instead of restore? Why do we prefer prison cells and death sentences to hospitality and learning and renewal and compassion? This is a goodness that exposes our limited vision, our fear of scarcity, and our fear of embracing the universal kinship God calls us to embrace. We live in a lot of fear, and God's abundance says, don't be afraid. This is a goodness that dares us to do brave and risky things, to hold out 
for the hearts of those who belong to God. The hearts of all our enemies matter to God, just as our hearts do, whether we like them or not. Do we have a right to be angry? God leaves us to decide. These two stories that affront our sense of fairness are for us now. Now, as we enter yet another season of political shouting, as autocracy is on the rise around the world, and as the earth itself is suffering from the human demand for more and more of every commodity. Now, when the climate crisis has so starkly revealed our interconnectedness, our fundamental interwovenness and dependence on each other, now is the time to let these two questions, are you right to be angry? Are you envious because I am generous? Now is the time to let those questions break our hearts open. Now is the moment to allow God to turn us toward mercy, to allow, to allow God to help us focus on all that is, in Paul's words, good, true, noble, compelling, and gracious. We can lift up and not cast down. We can repeat and amplify the stories of goodness that the world wants to drown out. We can repeat and amplify stories, just stories, of mercy that is unending. We can hold fast to the vision of a world of enough and more than enough for all. We can hold fast to that vision when it comforts us and when it challenges us and when it comforts us again. Amen. Listen, listen.